If you were not unable to be with us this morning, um, you probably didn't hear me discuss this, uh, so I want to bring it up this evening. Uh, I made our plans to preach through these books of the Bible way back, like November, uh, published them, you know, November, December, and, and the plan was in the new year, 2021, to work through the book of Acts and, on Sunday mornings, and then to work through the book of Genesis on Sunday nights. And then this morning, um, I was to the point in Acts chapter 5, and I preached on God's judgment of Ananias and Sapphira, right, for lying about their offering to the Lord. And then I was, letting, I was describing this to the church this morning that, you know, no one in, um, you know, seminary, when you dream and envision God using you to lead a church and preaching to the church, no one thinks about that text, right, as like, the one they're so excited to preach to the church about, right? Because it's not an easy text. And so, you know, but you still, when you preach through books of the Bible, you do that so that the church gets the whole book, right? So they get all the Word of God. So even the ones that you wouldn't pick, uh, necessarily the church gets to hear about what God says about that particular topic in that text. So I got the double bonus today. Uh, under God's sovereign will, way back in November when I made the preaching schedule, I had paid no attention to it, that on this particular Sunday, I would preach through two different books, and the old, one in the Old, one in the New Testament, on God's judgment. So today is Judgment Sunday. So I hope that you're happy to be here tonight because we're talking about God's judgment through the flood in Genesis chapter 7. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Genesis chapter 7. We're going to talk about the flood. Now, the question I have for you that I want you just to kind of put in the back of your mind as we discuss this text in Genesis chapter 7 is this. Will I trust in the Lord? Will I trust in the Lord even when I don't know His whole plan? Will I trust in the Lord even when I don't know His whole plan? We'll talk about that more in a few minutes. Will I trust in the Lord even when I don't know His whole plan? Anybody in here like to know everything? Yeah, most of us, right? We like to be in the know. That's why social media is so popular. Now, when we're going to execute some kind of plan or go do something, you're, if you're like a, a type A or a D or someone that's in charge, you like to know. If there's 10 steps, I want to know all 10 steps, right? When I was a kid... We were going on family vacation. I didn't just want to know what we're going to do on day one. I want to know if we're going to be gone seven days, what are we doing every single day? What are we doing on Monday? What are we doing on Tuesday? What about Wednesday, Thursday, Friday? I want to know when we're coming back. I want to know what time we're going to leave. Anybody else in here like that? I exhausted my parents. I exhausted them. I asked more questions than probably my two other siblings combined because I wanted to know the plan. I always want to know what was going to happen. So this text is especially convicting to me, and perhaps it will be to you if you're someone that likes to know everything all the time. Because sometimes God calls us to trust Him and to take a step of faith without knowing everything at that moment. And that's what God's going to call us to do tonight. That's what God called Noah to do when He called him and commanded him to enter the ark. So we're in Genesis 7, and let's look at this text. Genesis 7, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord, the Lord said to Noah, 
Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, two, a male and his female. Also of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. So Noah demonstrated faith in God up to this point, right? God came to Noah and he said, listen, I want you to build an ark. I want you to build a ginormous boat. I'm going to bring a a rain and a flood on this earth. I'm going to decimate everything on this earth, but I want you to build an ark and I'm going to save you. And so Noah did what God commanded to do. He took the steps, he followed God's plan, and built what is known today as one of the most seaworthy models of a ship known to man, especially of those made of wood. And so Noah demonstrated his faith in God, followed his command and his directive to build the ark. And so God gives him a divine directive in the first part of this text. I want you and your family and all the kinds of animals on the earth to enter this ark. So that's Noah's command. First, Noah's got to get his family on there. He's got to get all these animals on there, right? That's a pretty significant command from God, right? Can you imagine what that was like? All right, just let that float around in the back for a little while. So first thing God says, Noah and his family must be on the ark. That's Noah, that's his wife, that's his sons and his sons' wives, eight total people. And he says, God even says why he directs Noah and his family to get on the ark. He says, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me at this time. It's interesting that God declares for Noah to be a righteous man. It's because God imputes righteousness upon Noah. The question is, is Noah found righteous because of the way he lives in the midst of this wicked generation? No. Because our righteousness is not found in our good deeds. God imputes or puts upon us righteousness based on our faith in Him. It's not by good works. It never was by good works, not even in the Old Testament. Read Hebrews chapter 11 when you go home tonight. It talks about faith and righteousness. Those in the Old Testament were found to be righteous based on their faith in God. So God finds Noah righteous because of Noah's faith in God. Which, God, which Noah demonstrated through his acts of faith, such as building this giant ship and now moving his family and all these animals onto that ship because God is sending a flood. And so we see that it's our faith in God that provides a way to righteousness, not our good works. Some people have, have believed, and, and even in the past, I believe, you know, that kind of the New Testament was when righteousness came by faith, and then the Old Testament was by works. When in fact, righteousness in God's economy, righteousness is imputed upon people who exercise faith in God. That was even so in the law, in the Old Testament. They did the work of offering up the sacrifice, but the sacrifice was to be offered by faith in God. It wasn't just the act of offering a sacrifice that brought upon them righteousness. It was believing in God and in God's law, which God gave them to perform, that brought righteousness upon them from God and by 
God's grace. And so this is what's happening upon Noah at this time. Noah's building of the ark is a demonstration of his faith in God. Noah's entering the ark after God commanded him to do so is another demonstration of his faith in God. It's interesting to note that God makes no mention of Noah's family being righteous. It's possible that 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 phrase in that text, you alone, could mean that Noah and his household are righteous. But this phrase probably, this phrase actually indicates that Noah is the righteous one. Because if you go back and read chapters 6 and 7, when it talks about someone being righteous, it's always Noah. That's who God describes in both chapters as being righteous. So Noah's the one who's found righteous by God. And by God's grace, he invites Noah's family to also enter the ark. But they did enter the ark as a step of faith in obedience to Noah and his command for them to do so. Second, uh, first, God calls Noah to bring his family into the ark. The second part of his command that we see in this part of the text. Noah must make sure that specific kinds and numbers of animals are present on the ark. God makes a distinction between clean and unclean animals. Now, clean animals were those ordained by God to be proper for eating and sacrificing during worship. Those were clean animals. Unclean animals are the ones that God ordained to be inedible and improper for sacrificing during worship. If you want to make a note, I'm going to read this to you in just a minute. Deuteronomy chapter 14 is where one of the places in the Old Testament where God distinguishes or differentiates between clean and unclean animals. So let me read this to you. It's kind of long, but I just wanted to kind of show you what God's talking about here. Deuteronomy chapter 14, beginning in verse 3. You shall not eat of any detestable thing. These are the animals which you may eat. These would be clean animals. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. Any, any animal that divides the hoof and has the hoof split in two and chews the cud among the animals that you may eat. Nevertheless, you are not to eat of these among those which chew the cud or among those that divide the hoof in two, the camel and the rabbit, the chiffon. For though they chew the cud, they do not divide the hoof. They are unclean for you. The pig, because it divides the hoof but does not chew the cud, it is unclean for you. You shall not eat any of their flesh nor touch their carcasses. These you may eat of all that are in the water. Anything that has fins and scales you may eat. But anything that does not have fins and scales you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. You may eat any clean bird. But these are the ones which you shall not eat. The eagle, the vulture, and the buzzard. And the red kite, the falcon, and the kite in their kinds and every raven in its kind, and the ostrich, and the owl, and the seagull, and the hawk in their kinds, the little owl, the great owl, the white owl, the pelican, the carrion vulture, the cormorant, the stork, and the heron in their kinds, and the hoopoe, and the bat, and all the teeming life with wings are unclean to you. you shall, they shall not be eaten. You may eat any clean bird. So, 
there in that text, God distinguishes between clean and unclean animals. Now, our dietary laws have changed since Jesus came. He provided opportunity for us to eat any animals. Um, but in this particular time, this, these are the types of animals which Noah would bring onto the ark. God directs Noah to take seven pairs of clean animals and only one pair of unclean animals. So of the clean animals, he would bring seven pairs of male and female. Now, why do you suppose that God commanded to Noah for Noah to bring seven times more clean animals than unclean animals? Because they're hungry, as well as they're going to sacrifice to God. So they're going to need more of the clean animals to pop, repopulate the earth faster than the unclean animals. God wanted to uh, think after the flood, God wanted to repopulate the earth and to sustain humanity as we repopulated the earth. So God's uh, plan, God's desire was for the flood waters to subside and for Noah's family to, to be the, the foundation of all people and for those animals that were brought on the ark to be the foundation for all animals that would be on this earth. Now it's very interesting because God could have just created new animals, right? They didn't really need to go through the process of building the ark and bringing all those animals on the ark. God could have just created just like he did the first time, but he chose not to do that. He chose to uh, keep the animals that were on this earth and to have them repopulated. His reason for doing that is unknown. That's God's prerogative. So humanity needed more clean than unclean to sustain them and to repopulate the earth. And so look at verse 4. God continues to talk here. And he says, For after seven more days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. The Lord uses these numbers seven and forty throughout the Bible. I want to give you just a little description of that. Um, Ken Matthews, who writes a great commentary on the book of Genesis, uh, describes that. So let me read a little bit of that to you, just because I think it's interesting and I think it would be good for your knowledge of the Bible. The flood story commonly uses the number seven. You can find that all throughout chapters seven and eight. The seven-day intervals are found in the later dispersing of the animals outside of the ark. The narrative also has the reoccurring number of 40. Although the number seven is a constituent feature of the sacred calendar in ancient Israel, 40 also is an important figure marking events in Israel's experience under the patriarchs and especially under Moses. Both Isaac and Esau are 40 years of age when they marry. Moses remains on the mountain 40 days and nights in receiving the law and witnessing the glory of the Lord. Moses' life is divided up into periods of 40 years when Stephen gives that great historical testimony in the book of Acts, chapter 6 and chapter 7. Israel's spies are in the land for 40 days, and upon their disobedience, God sentences Israel to live and wander in the desert. How many years? 40 years. The 40-day deluge that the patriarch escapes therefore is matched with a 40-year wilderness um, survived by the lawgiver, that's Moses. Also, the 40 days that have been explained here are uh, known as a period of atonement. Moses' fast is 40 days when he um, prays to the Lord in contrition because of the idolatry 
of Israel. And as we noticed, uh, then they would wander for 40 years because of their rebellion against God. In this case, God comes to Noah and says, I'm going to bring the rains and the flood upon this earth in seven days. And then it's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. That's a lot of rain, right? And it didn't just rain. Water came up from subterranean um, water sources as well, from up inside the ground. 40 days. Do y'all remember pre-COVID? Does anybody have any pre-COVID memories? or Before COVID, which seems like that was like a lifetime ago. Um, do y'all remember it was like two years ago? And we had one particular weekday here in Key West um, where it was, it was beautiful and the skies are blue and everything looked great. And then all this, these clouds came in real fast and it rained for like two hours. I was over at Big John's and the water was like a foot deep in that parking lot. Do y'all by chance remember that rain? We do get a lot of rains, but it was like, it was a torrential downpour and this whole city flooded in two hours. Now, that happened in just two hours over at that parking lot. There was like a foot of water everywhere. Imagine what it was like and how, how fast and how quick the rains came and the floods came when, when, when you had torrential rain upon this earth for 40 days. Like, how long are our typical hurricanes down here? Like, maybe like three, four days? Jack, is that about right? Right? And then it starts raining and the water starts coming up, you know, and, and it, it floods this island pretty quick, right? Within hours. Anybody ever been on this island when there was a hurricane? Okay, what about the big one where I saw the, what was the big one where we flooded our fellowship hall? Wilma. How long from when the rain started did it take for the guy in the kayak to like boat past our fellowship hall? Was that like a day? Less? 12 hours? Okay. Now, right, there's, so there's water coming from everywhere. Because you have a, a, like a wind that's blowing it in, all that kind of stuff, right? So imagine Wilma for 40 days. So much water, and we'll talk about this more next week, but so much water that it's above the highest mountains by hundreds of feet around the whole earth. That's how much water there was. That's, that's what he's describing here. That's about to happen. And so God says, God tells Noah, the consequence of this 40 days of rain, look at it, I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I've made. The Hebrew word that Moses chose here for the phrase blot out is very, very interesting. Now, when you read that, you would probably think that it means to destroy or wipe out. Does anybody have a, a translation that says anything else besides blot out? Everyone else says blot out? Okay. Um, let's see. Verse 4, God says, I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Destroy, wipe, anything else? 
Those are all, you know, synonyms. That's what they mean. What's interesting, if we were all reading the Hebrew Old Testament right now, I wish we could. Um, I wish we all knew Hebrew so we could read it. That phrase, blot out, actually, it has two important meanings for this context. It does mean to wipe out, to destroy, um, to, you know, obliterate. It does mean that. But it also means something else. It also means to wash off or to remove iniquities with water. That's what blot out means in Hebrew as well. Isn't it interesting that Moses chose that word, that very specific Hebrew word? Let's reread it. God says, I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Not only is God going to, to destroy, He's also purifying His creation. That's what the water is doing. And that, that Hebrew word says that. So the next question is, how did God respond? How did Noah respond to God and His commands? Verse 5. Noah did according to all that God commanded him. Now, church, if only that could be said of us every day, right? Like, that's such a simple sentence. But oh, that that sentence would be written about you and me. That we hear the Word of God, right, from this book. We hear it. And then if someone were writing about our life, they would write verse 5. Doug did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Jeannie did all that the Lord God commanded her. Darlene did all that the Lord God commanded her. Oh, that our life would be about that. Well, we can follow the testimony and the, the righteousness of Noah because Noah did what God commanded him to do. He took a step of faith and believed that God would send a worldwide flood. That had not happened before. So when God says, I'm going to do this, it's not like it happened like, you know, two weeks ago. God's telling Noah, I'm going to do something the likes of which you've never seen, nor could you comprehend it. So it was a step of faith by Noah to get in that boat and to trust that God's going to do what God said he was going to do. Noah also labored to ensure that every animal God desired to be on that ark was on the ark. Noah did all this. Think about this. Noah gets his family on the ark. Noah, through God's, the miracle of God, gets all these pairs of animals on the ark. Right? He does all that while living among a generation of people so wicked that God destroyed them. Remember, we went over this a couple you know, weeks ago. Uh, imagine living in a community that was defined as a people who murder, steal, just inundated with sexual immorality and death and destruction. Those are his neighbors. These are the people that live among him. So he's trying to obey God and do everything God's called him to do in the middle of that context. While preaching to the people a message of repentance and being denied by them, this message of repentance. All right, so let's keep going in verse 6. Now Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood, of clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps in the ground. There went into the ark to Noah, uh, to Noah by twos, 
male and female, as God commanded Noah. It came about after seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. So, as is common in Old Testament genealogies and throughout Genesis, the patriarch or the important person in that story is the one they use to measure time. So Noah, they, they, they'll use Noah's age to measure what's going on in the sequence of events. So Noah's 600 when God unleashes the flood upon the earth. He's 601 when the flood subsides. And thus the flood, the flood lasted one year and 11 days. Now, in verses 8 through 10, we're going to see that Noah is like Adam, who named the creatures, but instead of naming them, Noah preserves them. These verses indicate that Noah did exactly what God called him to do before the flood began. He brought pairs of unclean animals and seven pairs of clean animals. The question is why did God tell Noah to get on the ark? Why did God. Go to Noah and tell him, okay, you guys need to start getting on the ark. Um, and then in seven days, I'm going to flood the earth. So why did God make the announcement and then wait seven days before flooding the earth? Well, Matthews has an interesting comment about this. He writes, according to the Jewish Midrash, the seven-day interval is a period of mourning for the death of Methuselah, who dies in the year of the flood or a period for God's own grief for the world. So it's possible that God made the announcement and then gave seven, seven days as a, as a period of mourning. In seven days, the world would begin to be destroyed. It's also possible that He was giving people one final opportunity to repent. God isn't, isn't our God patient and gracious the Bible says he doesn't desire for anybody to perish. And I'm sure it was his desire here for all the people on this earth to repent. Even God allowing one moment of time to pass without pouring out his wrath is a moment of grace and demonstrates his love and grace and mercy. So this passage doesn't really give an indication or reason for that one week of waiting but we see toward the end that uh, as the rains begin that Noah has the ark loaded with his family and with the animals that God commanded him to load. Noah's confidence has not been misplaced. He devoted his obedience and followed God's command. And he exemplifies Psalm 37.5 which says, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will do this. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will do this. Maybe you just need to hear that tonight. We don't always understand everything that God has done, is doing, or will do in our lives. His ways are above our ways. His ways are not our ways. And, and I don't think there is a way for us to understand His purpose perfectly. But time after time after time, we see these people demonstrating faith in God, trusting in Him, following His will and His command. And the psalmist tells us here in 37.5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him. And He will do this. So maybe you need to hear that tonight. Maybe God's calling you to take a step of faith. Maybe you're walking through a difficult season today. Maybe you don't understand what's going on in your life. Hear that passage. 
Psalm 37, 5. Hear it. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will do it. Whatever it is in your life, you can trust in God to fulfill His promises to you. Just like He fulfilled His promises to Noah. All right, let's, let's talk about now what's going to happen next when the rain falls in verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, in the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were open. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Oftentimes, significant events were dated in accordance with the rule of the monarch in Israel. We talked about this. It makes sense that Moses would use Noah's age to designate current events and everything that's happening in this context. It's interesting um, that we see the date in the second month, in the 17th day of the month, the same day is hard to pinpoint um, due to the fact that Hebrews used two different calendars uh, throughout their points in history. Uh, Moses mentions, however, in Genesis 8.22 that this occurred during seed time, and this indicates that the flood probably began in the fall during the heavy rains. So what do you think that day was like for the world? It's kind of easy for us to read about that, and you know we, we think about and, and oftentimes tell stories about Noah's Ark, and kind of when they enter the Ark, we all kind of go in the Ark with them, right? Well, what about outside the Ark? Imagine how horrible it was during those moments, during those days. Well, Jesus tells us about what, what happened leading up to those moments. Listen to Matthew 24, 37 to 39. Jesus is going to compare the days, the last days of earth before the flood to the last days before Jesus returns. He said the, the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. The people will ignore Noah's preaching. You can make a note. Second Peter 2.5 talks about how he preached the people before the rains came. The testimony of their conscience against their evil deeds will be suppressed and they live life exactly as they had leading up to that horrific day. When the rain started to fall and the floods started to well up from the springs of the earth, the people were surprised and terrified. God's flooding of the earth was comprehensive in nature. The text there says, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were open. That means water was coming up from inside the ground. Water was coming down from the heavens. And the flow of water was rapid and violent. Matthews writes, Subterranean waters burst forth and the cloud bursts are overwhelming so that they are like floodgates of the heavens flung open. The word for burst forth is used of Israel's experience that witnesses the divided waters of the Red Sea. 
in the book of Exodus. And the earthquake that split apart the swallows and swallows the members of Korah's rebellion in Numbers chapter 16. So everything that began to happen on that seventh day after God said that he would send the rains and the floods, all of that happened, and it happened quickly and violently. It was not subtle, and it, was, it would have been terrifying. The same kind of terrifying that we have when we're here and a hurricane comes, right? And those waters start coming up, and you realize, have you been in a hurricane where you recognize that there was nowhere for you to go? Anybody in here been in a hurricane and, and had that happen? I remember when we were in Iowa, or in Iowa, when we were in Jacksonville, and um, we went to bed, and it was, um, was that Irma? Before we came here, was that Irma? Was Irma the hurricane that went through Jacksonville before we moved down here? Thank you, Will. Um, so you remember Irma, right? She was tough. Um, we were in Jacksonville, and I remember, uh, you know, there's hurricane warnings, and we knew she was coming. She hit Orlando and then came around and then hit back in Jacksonville. And um, I remember going to bed that night and waking up the next day, and I came out and looked, and I thought, like, that I wasn't fully awake because I looked outside in the front yard, and the land was moving. The sun was just starting to come up, so it was still kind of dusk, or still kind of dark. And uh, then I kind of like rubbed my eyes and got a flashlight, and it wasn't land moving, that was water. That was water flowing through our front yard. And that happened, obviously, because it came up through Orlando, and uh, the St. John's River flows from south to north. So all that water from Orlando was coming up, and it was in my front yard. And I remember walking out and looking and seeing giant oak trees had fallen on both sides of our street, right? So we're not getting in the car and driving anywhere. So what we got is what we got right here. This is it, right? No matter, uh, we, we don't know when the water's going to stop. We just know we can't go anywhere. And so I remember just praying and asking the Lord, like, please, you know, a prayer many of you have probably prayed in hurricanes. Please, please make this water stop. You know, and we were blessed by God, and it, you know, it did stop, but I, I'm, I always think about those events when I read this text, and, I, and imagine that the water didn't stop. The water kept going, and it kept rising and rising and rising, and in such a wicked generation, I can't even imagine what the people did to one another as those floodwaters came up. So that's what's going on. I just wanted to sort of plant that in your mind as we read this text. Verse 13 continues. It says, On that very same day, Noah and Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. So verse 13 is when the rain starts, when the water starts to come up, after that seven days that God said he was going to flood the land, they enter the ark. They and every beast after its kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, and all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh in which there was a breath of life. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded them, and the Lord closed it behind them. So Noah's, Noah and his family demonstrate their faith in God by getting into the ark at the appropriate time. They had a decision to make once the rain started to fall and the springs of water erupted from under the earth. They had a question to answer as that water started to rise. Will this ark save us from this? Right? Have y'all ever been in a boat during a storm and wondered and hoped 
man, I hope this boat's sturdy enough to, to take this storm. Also, it doesn't talk about Noah having any kind of rudder or way to steer that boat. They're just in this floating vessel, trusting in God to see them through this horrific event. Also, think about this. I'm sure if something like this happened today, which God said it never will again happen, but if something like this were to happen, um, I'm sure that there would be no shortage of theories dictating what we're supposed to do, right? We saw that during COVID. Everybody had a theory, right, about how to beat COVID. There were theories coming out of all kinds of people. Imagine during Noah's day the theories that probably abounded about this flood and this rain, even though Noah preached to them about their wickedness and about God's judgment. Yet still, Noah and his family take the step of faith to trust in God. Do you not think that the people that were around Noah had all kinds of reasons why it was raining and how probably all oh, this rain's going to stop? You don't need to get in that boat. It's just going to rain like it always does, and then it's going to stop. No problem. And yet, they took a step of faith trusting in God. And they board the ark. Perhaps one of the great mysteries of this event is the process through which the pairs of animals entered the ark. How in the world did that happen? We don't really know. I would like to know one day, perhaps, if God is gracious enough to let me know that, maybe in heaven. How did you get all those animals on that boat? Six, verse, 16, verse 16 indicates that everyone entered the ark as God commanded. But God commanded Noah to complete that as well. So Noah had taken you know, part in doing something to get them on that boat. Our question, it seems, will remain unanswered for now. I also want to point out one more thing that's important for us to notice in this section of the text. Verse, verse 16 says, Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. It's easy for us to forget or to read over the very last part of that verse. Who was it that closed the door? It was God. God's the one that closed the door. God shut the door, and this reminds Noah and his family that God's in control of this situation. So they're all in the ark, right? And, and the rain's starting, and the, the floodwaters are starting to well up. And the giant door just starts to close. That's God shutting the door, right? Noah didn't shut the door. His sons didn't shut the door. God closed the door. Do you think that that was important for them to remember that God's in control? Like, that's a miracle that, that the door shuts, right? By power of God. God shuts the door. Do you think that helped to get them through those many months on the ark? Remember, this isn't us. This isn't our plan. This is God's plan. How often do you think Noah had to get the family around and be like, listen, God... God's in control of this. God, Remember, God told us to build the, the ark. You remember that God brought all the animals and how amazing it was when they all walked in to the ark? Do you remember at the end when God shut the door? Do you think they, I think they probably needed to hear that. I think I would need to hear that. God shuts the door. Now, that same God is a part of your life too. And maybe you need to hear this tonight. Listen to Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. 
The righteous runs into it and is safe. Where are we running during our times of difficulty, during our days of disaster? Are we running to the Lord? The Lord's the one that shuts the door. The Lord is the strong tower. The Lord is the one that provides safety for us in our time of greatest need. We find our peace and our safety in the Lord. All right, one last point here. As the floodwaters rise, in verse 17, it says, Then the flood came upon the earth for forty days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark, so that rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms on the earth, and all mankind. Of all that was on dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. The water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. Some modern scholars like to believe that this is really just a local flood. And so they believe that Moses was writing this um, using hyperbole or using exaggerated statements to make it seem like something that it wasn't, that, that wasn't really, uh, that hadn't really taken place. But there's nothing in the context of this passage that indicates that Moses used hyperbole and a plethora of other Bible passages that support a universal flood. Now, kind of in conclusion, there's this great article in, on the website of Answers in Genesis, if you've never been there. It's answersingenesis.org. Ken Ham is the, the um, curator of, all of that ministry and of his museums. Um, and we're taking a trip up to see the Ark Encounter, uh, which is a, a life-size replica of the Ark, as well as the Creation Museum in Kentucky. Um, so what I wanted to give you today was just kind of in conclusion, six evidences for a universal flood. So we have archaeological evidence that a universal flood happened. I'm going to give you just six, and if you want more information, I've got you know, tons of stuff listed. I'm just going to give you kind of the, the headings for tonight. Number one, we know that there was a universal flood because fossils of sea creatures high above sea level due to ocean waters having flooded over the continents. So we have sea creature, fossils of sea creatures way higher than they belong, and the only answer for that is that the flood waters brought them there. Number two, we have evidence of rapid burial of plants and animals. Number three, rapidly deposited sediment layers spread across vast areas. Number four, we have sediment transported long distances. Number five, rapid or no erosion between strata. A lot of this they find in the Grand Canyon. These are where they find a lot of this evidence. And finally, number six, many strata laid down in rapid succession. So we have animals, and fossils of animals moved great distances to places of higher elevation where they don't belong. 
We have evidence of rapid change that wouldn't have happened over millions of years, but in a very short period of time. All of these are evidence for a universal, global flood. So, let me just conclude with this same question that I asked you earlier. Will I trust the Lord even if I don't know the entire plan? Will I trust the Lord even when I don't know the entire plan? When um, I was finishing up my doctoral work, sometimes I would get suggestions back from my advisors and they would tell me, you know, you got to you got to make this particular change. We suggest, you know, you redraw out this outline and, and make these changes and, and you know, the, it, your writing will flow better and your research will, will look stronger. And sometimes they would write things and I would read it over and I, to be honest, I had no idea what they were talking about. Like, I have no idea what you just wrote, let alone how to do what you just wrote. And so I would have to call them and be like, I don't understand this. Tell me, tell me what you mean by that. And they would kind of articulate it. And, and I would do what they said. And still, sometimes I would write and, and reorganize my thoughts. And then after doing that, I would look back at the way I said it the first time and I would like that better, but I would do what they wanted um, because they're the folks that give me my degree. So if they tell you to do something, you do it, right? And so it's happened like three or four times and and, and I didn't always understand why I did those certain things. And for some of those things, I didn't understand why I made a change until I was sitting at the table at my dissertation defense. And then my uh, thesis or my dissertation advisor brought one of those points up. And then he asked me, tell me about this. I, you know, I want you to kind of tell me how you came to that conclusion. And I went through the points the way that they told me to. And he was satisfied with that. And as soon as I was walking through those points, I understood why I had to make those changes. But I didn't understand why I made those changes until that moment in time. Now, I think that God works that way in our lives as well. God calls us to trust in Him and to take steps of faith, believing that His plan for our lives is the best plan. His future for us is the best future from an eternal perspective. And I think on this earth, in this life, we won't always understand the whole plan until eternity. But God's promise to us is, listen, trust me. Trust me. Trust me. My plan for you is good. Trust me. What I'm asking for you to do is the best for you. Trust me. And we may not necessarily understand the whole plan until we get to glory. Noah, I'm sure, didn't understand everything that was going to happen when God called him to build that ark, but he built the ark. And then God came and said, I'm going to send the flood. And then he sent the flood. And then it was time to get out. And God said, it's time to get out. And I want you to do these things. So he did those things. He didn't always have everything all at once and probably didn't understand everything that God asked him to do. But he obeyed God. He fulfilled God's will in his life. And so too, church, so too must we fulfill God's plan in our lives. Will I trust in God even when I don't know the plan? Will I trust him? I want to invite our team to come back up for our last song of invitation. I'm going to pray now and I want to invite you
to let that kind of roll around in your heart today. Will I take a, fa- uh, will I take a step of faith and trust in God? Heavenly Father, I pray over this time now, as we close, help us to trust in you. We don't always understand everything that you do in our lives. We know that you're good, and we know that the things you command us to do are good, and and they're what's best for us. In our ignorance, Lord, in our short-sightedness, even in, Lord, our, our inability to understand everything, will you give us a spirit of faith and trust? Help us to know what you've called us to do with our lives and being obedient to your word. Help us to know that that's the very best thing for us and to trust you in it no matter where it leads. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.